from 1.6 to under 900 in the span of three and a half months. And then today, um, you know, those accounts are over $4 million. That's the weird thing about this whole thing is like, you know, having 1 million compared to 5 million, I don't live any different. I, I do the same. I eat at the same places. I, you know, I drive, I have a 2011 Jeep Grand Cherokee that I've had for six years. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode 208. Clark, what's going on in your world? How you doing? Dude, doing pretty good. What's going on with you? Not a lot, man. Just getting all into the Halloween festivities and fall festivities. We've got great football going on and all sorts of things at this time of year. What about you? Except our team lost last week, huh? Yeah, that was a, that was a tough game to watch, but I'm actually going to the game this week. I'm pretty excited. It should be a, should be a fun one. Oh, nice. Nice, yeah. BYU-Baylor we're talking about. Yeah. We got a listener question from Michael this week, and we just wanted to read it and talk about that. He says, my name's Michael. I'm an emergency room nurse with about $45,000 in student debt. I was wondering if you could ask a question. The question is, when you are young, is it smart to pay off student loans or better to invest in the market, businesses or 401k, et cetera, rather than paying the loans off in full? Is having capital, I assume he means is having capital invested, worth more than having no debt? So what's your take on that, Jace? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think obviously it's going to be different for, for everyone. But I'm of the school of thought that I like to have a little bit more cash pad than probably most in regards to being able to pay off debt and having you know very little cash. Just because... I, I think just in this day and age, especially when we talked about inflation not too long ago, I mean, you just never know what kind of expenses could pop up. But I think some of this depends on whether or not you're already a homeowner, whether or not, you know, you're, you've got some other established fixed bills that you need to pay or not. And, you know, to some degree, I, I still think it's important to invest in your, your 401k, even if you've got student loan debt, if you've got a match or even if you don't. Uh, you know, that's just my personal preference. I think those, those monies compounded over time or, or, you know, on finance, on the calculator and on paper, you're going to end up with a better return than probably that interest rate is on your student loan. Now, having said that though, what, what tends to happen, and this is why people who typically follow like a Dave Ramsey school of thought or, you know, they want to get out of debt is those loans end up sticking around for everywhere. And because they are so low and you end up not really attacking them and probably end up paying more interest than you need to. So I think there's a healthy balance in trying to figure out, you know, how to pay that off, how to save for a house, when to get in the market. To some degree, that's a fixed payment. On the other hand, buying, you know, assets are most likely going to go up in value over your lifetime. So it's good to get in early. What about you? Yeah. And I think I would say, Michael, to this answer in terms of what we've heard from our millionaires, I think both Jace and I have been surprised that millionaires have not necessarily rushed to to pay off their homes. Um, the, I would say the majority of whom we've talked to, of course, there's people both ways, but more uh, than 50% of the millionaires have kept their mortgage on their home if they've had a low rate. However, 
I would say we've never heard of people keeping student loans longer. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jace. Maybe there's been a couple, but very rarely, if any, heard of people keeping their student loans longer, even if there was a low rate on those. So I think just in interviewing the 300 millionaires or so that we've talked to, that's that's one thing I've noticed in in relation to to, to that question. Is, is that correct, Jace? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, just just in general, millionaires that we've talked to, and I think most, especially non business owners for the most part are, are more debt adverse. But at the same time, like you mentioned, I think we've been surprised how many have had a home loan longer than maybe they could. Some even have the cash in the bank to pay it off. And then also some that might've gotten a car loan at one time or another that probably had the cash to pay for that as well. You know, that's, it, it's been surprising more than I would have thought. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, yeah, but I'd say now all the millionaires are pretty much debt free, except that they have real estate or, or mortgage on their primary home. So nobody's sitting around with very few. I think that we've talked to are sitting around with any student loans or credit card debt or car payments or anything like that. Yeah, definitely not credit card debt, and and definitely not keeping that student loan around for twenty plus years like you would maybe a mortgage. So interesting question, interesting thought. Thanks again, Michael, for sending that in. If you'd like to submit a question, we've got SpeakPipe on our website, millionairesunveiled.com. You can voice it in or or happy to to respond to emails just like Michael sent one in. And we'll we'll pose that to a few millionaires that we're interviewing here in the near future too, just to get their takes on it. And we can get a separate, you know, direct answer from some of them as well. This week we have Al. He's a part-time financial advisor, a drummer, and an outdoorsman. His net worth is $5 million, half of which has been invested in one stock, one you might have heard, called Tesla. Initially put two hundred grand into it, and it's obviously ballooned over the last few years. He's over $3.5 million in retirement accounts, majority of that, which is Tesla. 500 k in brokerage accounts, which is all individual stocks. 200 k in a rental property. 200 k in his primary residence and then some other ancillary accounts like HSA and cash. It's interesting, his net worth at the beginning of the pandemic, before the pandemic started was 1.6, and he had dropped down to 900,000 in just a few months. So we talked to him about that drop, and what he was thinking for himself, and for some of his clients that he manages money for, and then how he was able to springboard that to over $5 million now. Last week's episode, we had Brandon. He's a window washer. He had a net worth of $230,000 without his business. Some of his in retirement accounts, some of his been in real estate, and the rest is in cash. Interesting point on, on a follow-up with Brandon. He wrote into us, and his net worth is now uh, significantly over $500,000 since we've interviewed him. So it's been been quite crazy uh, talking to some of these, you know, we've got a little bit of delay in some of these interviews when, when they get posted. And some of these millionaires have doubled their, their net worth in such a short amount of time just because the market's been so crazy. We appreciate you tuning into the week or to, into the podcast week after week. If you enjoy the show, we appreciate you leaving a five star review on either iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere you listen to the show. Helps us continue to grow the show and reach new millionaire interviewees. Really appreciate you appreciate y'all that, that that do. Also in the show notes, we have a survey. If you would please fill that out, it won't take more than a couple minutes. It's going to help us kind of collect some some information just of our listener base and hope that we'll be able to cater some of the things at our show better and understand our audience a little bit better. So once again, that's in the show notes of today's show. And without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Al. Al, you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. I'm a financial advisor. Uh, that's what I do for a living at this point. I've been doing that for 25 years. I also host a podcast and I play drums in a band called Spy Baby outdoor enthusiasts. I was kind of telling you before that 
the financial advisor piece of my life now is I would it's kind of like part time. So I, I do I manage a clientele of about a hundred clients, and it's been that way for about eight years. It hasn't really shrank or grown much in that time. Uh, so it's pretty much on autopilot at this point. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? So net worth today, yeah, it changes day by day. Uh, today, it's I think we estimated about around five million today. Awesome. And how is that broken up? All right. Well, I have it written down here because I, I couldn't remember it off the top of my head. So in a taxable brokerage account, I have five hundred thousand, and that's split between everything's in individual stocks. I'm almost ashamed to say. In a SEP IRA, I have three point three five million. And that's, you know, an accumulation of 401k assets over the years that were rolled over plus contributions and that kind of thing. 260 grand in a Roth IRA. And I have one rental property that used to be a former primary residence, about 200 grand in equity there. Primary residence, about 200 grand in equity. And then, you know, small stuff like HSA, 27,000. Um, savings account, about 12,000. That pretty much sums it up. It's it's a really like an uncomplicated uh, net worth. I don't have businesses or you know extensive rental properties or anything like that. And debt is just on the rental property and primary residence. It is. That's correct. Okay. Interesting. So obviously that that retirement and that three point six. I mean that's pretty substantial. So let's get into that. I know you got a pretty unique story around that and 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 how that has grown. Yes. In the last year, which has been the most interesting year in every way, I'm sure for many of us, it started, I mean, January 1st. January 1st, I remember looking at my statement, and this is all of my investments, including non, non-retirement non and retirement together. I had $1.6 million. And by the end of March, of course, you know, after the pandemic broke out and the market hit its, you know, low, which, you know, was like, you know, an elevator ride down real fast. I went from 1.6 to just under 900,000. And I was losing my mind. I mean, I, I've been in this industry for 25 years, almost 25 years, and I'd never seen it go down that fast. And you know the feeling when you get into those markets, you just, you have no idea how low it's going to go. And in my business, you know, not only are you in a panic for your own assets, you're in a panic for your client's assets. Now the clients are upset, they're calling, uh, your income obviously goes down because you're getting paid on the assets that you manage. It's just you're getting hit on all ends when there's a down market like that. So from 1.6 to under 900 in the span of three and a half months, and then today, um, you know, those accounts are over $4 million. So I basically almost got cut in half and then more than quadrupled in the last you know, less than a year. So it's been a roller coaster ride. So backing up, you're what worth maybe two million at the beginning of last year and then pandemic hits, you go down to one three, one four? Yeah, that's right. In three months. And now up to five. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It doesn't So seem... you're just a really good financial advisor is what you're telling us. Yeah, you know, it's 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 all skill, you know. I have to have to say it's my uh financial advisor's <laughs> prowess. I mean, it's been the luckiest year. The weirdest thing, because it felt like the most unlucky year and turned into, from a financial standpoint, the luckiest year of my life. And we didn't mention that, you know, 
2.5, about 2.5 million of the assets that I have are in Tesla stock. Holy cow. No yeah. way. Yeah. yeah wow. So, so yeah. two, two and a half million, you just ride in the wave of Elon Musk. And yeah. That, and many people are, right? I mean, Tesla's been on a tear this year. So, maybe for our listeners back up, when did you decide to purchase Tesla and what's been your journey as an investor in Tesla and why did you choose Tesla? Um, well, I bought Tesla back in 2017. Of course, we you know, watched a few videos of Elon Musk. The thing that sold me on Tesla, and I heard this, it was kind of a piece of advice that I got from Peter Lynch from Fidelity. I remember like reading one of his books back in the day and he mentions like, if you're going to invest in a company, start, you know, if you want to start kind of sifting through companies, just look in your community, like look to see like what companies are doing well. If you walk into a Starbucks and it's packed every single day, well, maybe, you know, Starbucks might be a good investment. You know, at least you start there. So I remember going to supermarkets here in Charlotte and seeing Teslas all, you know, all over the place. And I'd always, you know, I have to look at them and I'd, you know, literally get out of my car, I'd press my hands up against their window, look inside the car to see like the big monitor and all that. And a handful of times I've met the owners of the cars, you know, coming out of the supermarket and every single one of them were just raving fans. And I had one guy, didn't know the guy. I was just, again, looking in his window and he saw me coming out. He's like, yeah, you like the car? He's like, I love it. It's amazing. And he's like, if I wasn't going to pick up my wife right now, I, I'd take you for a ride. I'm like, this is a, you know, a stranger. <laughs> and I don't know, something clicked. I was like, you know, like I, I've watched Elon Musk. I've listened to what he had to say. Now I, I hear what the customers are saying about the products. Again, this is all like, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, I, I didn't know it was going to do what it was going to do. I just had some confidence. So I bought a thousand shares. It was, you know, at that point, I spent, I don't know, a little over 200 grand to get in, you know, for, for the thousand shares. This is a pre-split. And it went up, you know, so it went up from $200 a share to 500, almost 600. And I remember it was right before an earnings call where I panicked a little bit. You know, I earnings call was coming. You know, it could have went either way. You know, it could have really dipped hard. And I sold half the shares. I sold 500 shares. I had a friend of mine from New York that was is a financial advisor. And he was kind of in my ear a little bit. He's like, yeah, you should, you know, take some profit. Get out. You know, you have a thousand shares. Man, wish I would have held those shares, you know. It worked out either way, but you know. How much would though have been worth today? I mean, how much are you looking at? I don't know it's it's not not easy to, to look at, but that. just curious though. I mean, you still have a lot in there, right? You've rode the wave, but what roughly what were you looking at? It, I mean, it literally would have been another two million dollars, another two million on top of what I have. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, because they I mean, you're like if, the guy who lost his Bitcoin, man. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like the two hundred million in Bitcoin that's in the dump in the UK that he can't find. Exactly, Dude, that yeah. that one's worse, right? Two hundred million. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that one's worse. <laughs> two 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 million's not changing his life. He's already he's already got five, right? Two million's not going to change it that much, would it? Would you think differently? No. Would you invest differently? You had two more million more. No, and that's the weird thing about this whole thing is like you know having one million compared to five million. I don't live any different. I, I do the same. I eat at the same places. I, you know, I drive, I have a 2011 Jeep Grand Cherokee that I've had for six years, you know. Wait, you didn't, you didn't buy the Tesla yet? 
<laughs> that's next on my list. As soon as that Cybertruck comes out, I'm getting one of those. So next year, hopefully. For the time being, I'm holding off. Um, so you put you put 200 in, and now it's worth 2.5. I put 200 in, yes, and then I sold out of half of it when it kind of went two and a half to three times. And then, yeah, and then kept that half. So I kept 500 shares, which is now 2,500 because it was a five-to-one split. I bought an extra 300 shares in my Roth. I basically converted my entire Roth IRA to Tesla. Like as soon as I saw Tesla dip wow. a little bit, I'm like my whole entire Roth is going in Tesla. It's my one, in my opinion, it's the best long-term play I think I have. If I can go out more than 10 years and I figure, you know, of course you want to be as aggressive as possible in your Roth, you know, with no RMDs and just, you know, tax-free money. At least that's my mentality. Be very aggressive within the Roth. So were you nervous about putting 200 on one stock? It didn't make you cringe a little? Oh. You just believed in it. No, completely nervous. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had mutual funds my entire life up until, you know, probably five years ago. Five years ago, I started buying a little bit of Apple, buying some Amazon, Netflix, you know, all the stuff that everybody buys. And then when I came across Tesla, I just kept watching videos. I read Elon Musk's, I don't know if it's an autobiography or a biography, but I read like, you know, based on the story of his life, just everything seemed to make sense. He, he didn't seem like a regular CEO. You know, I, I watch CNBC every day and you watch these guys with their suits and their perfect ties and speaking like the corporate jargon. And he didn't do any of that. And he just didn't seem like some people call him arrogant. I see him as just the polar opposite. I don't see him as arrogant at all. Just seems like a super intelligent guy that understands what he's doing, un- understands like the engineering, the manufacturing. Like he's right. right. I don't know. There's some, there was just something about him that m- gave me confidence. So in my mind, it was worth the risk. And I was young enough. You know, at the time I was 44 years old. I'm 47 now. And I'm like, you know what? I got 15 years, you know. There was kind of a lot that went into this. But yeah, I mean, at the, I, I was scared. But at the same point, I felt it was worth the risk. So how long are you riding at now? <laughs> That's or like, when, are you going to start selling off little by little? Or are you just going to hold it and see what happens? I'm kind of at this point, I'm holding it. You know, I'm I'm more scared to sell it than to hold it. Because I'm, I'm more scared that I'm going to really kick myself if it, you know, if it doubles from here and I sold out. Um, I think the smart move, I mean, granted, I'm a financial advisor. I should know this. The smart move would be to kind of start taking some profits, right? But in my mind, I have that gambler's kind of fallacy where I feel like I'm playing with the house's money, you know, where I've already sold. I've already made money in it and kind of recoup my original investments and then some. Although the house's money is, you know, over $2 million. (laughs) (laughs) I know. That's what I'm thinking. It becomes a lot different when you're playing with that kind of money. Yeah, it's so strange. Like it took me, you know, 20 years to get to a million and then what, nine months to get to five. It, it made, it just makes no sense. So I'm kind of like almost shell shocked from the whole experience. So I'm trying to get my bearings and I think eventually I will get more conservative, but I don't think anytime soon. I'm just, uh, you know, too young. <laughs> it's IRA money too. So it's money I'm not going to touch probably for, you know, 10 years minimum, if not longer. Did you put your clients in Tesla too? I did not. I did not. So I, I, I'm much more conservative with my clients' money, much more diversified with my clients' money. I think it's what are they, what, what's that saying about the cobbler? The cobbler has the worst shoes. You know, I, I'm just, I mean, I've gotten lucky right. 
that I take more risk with my money than I ever would with clients' money. I just didn't have the conviction to put other people into what I was doing. Yeah. So are you married? Was your wife on board with this when you said I'm buying $200,000 of Tesla stock? Uh, no. Well, well, so I'm divorced and I have, it sounds so silly at 47 saying a girlfriend, but I have a girlfriend of six years. Uh, I have a 13 year old daughter. I have an 11 year old stepdaughter. Yeah, that we don't actually, we have separate finances. So it wasn't something we discussed. I mean, she obviously knows now because I've been bragging about it. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, and she's all aboard. I mean, she kind of sees what I see. And like, I'm constantly just watching videos of, you know, just people talking about Tesla from either side and the technology. I definitely not an analytical person, but I try to keep up with what's, you know, the news on Tesla and, sure. uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, that's interesting. Let's back it up here, though, and just talk about your story a little bit, Al. Tell us about how this all started, you know, where you grew up, what you did, your career, how you became a financial advisor. Give us your story. Yeah. So I grew up in Long Island, New York. And at age 23, I graduated from SUNY Potsdam, which is the State University of uh, New York and Potsdam, which is on the Canadian border. Old place in the tundra up there in upstate New York. And I came back down. I lived with my parents for, I don't know, I think it was like nine months. And they sprung it upon me that we're selling the house and we're moving to Florida and we're moving to a retirement community. So obviously you can't come with us. So I was kind of kicked out of the nest at, you know, 22 and a half, 23. And really like all of this started out of like fear, fear and almost desperation of not being able to provide for myself. So I took a commission-only job with New York Life Insurance Company, four years of selling life insurance as a 23-year-old, not an easy thing to do, didn't make much money, worked in Manhattan for a few years, selling health insurance, knocking on doors, just lots of cold calling and just going from like office building to office building in Manhattan and just, you know, had, you know very demoralizing kind of work. You know, it was terrible. I mean, I learned a lot. I if I had to do it over again, I don't think I'd choose to go through that, but definitely learned a lot through the experience. And then just slowly kind of like worked up the ranks, you know, basically went into, you know, JP Morgan Chase, worked there for a while, worked at Wells Fargo for a while, worked at a few other places, and then kind of landed a, just a sweet deal at Wells Fargo where I worked in a 401k division. It was kind of like you were working just with retirement assets and you were working with rolling people's money over in their 401ks to an IRA that I would manage and that would be commissionable. Fast forward, I moved to Charlotte. I wound up moving all of those clients from Wells Independent and I've had that business for the last eight years. So that's been kind of like my working career in a nutshell. Did you start that business from scratch then? From, yeah, complete scratch. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, scratch is definitely an understatement. I mean, it was just, there was nothing. I mean, just complete cold calling and just, again, it was fear and desperation. I don't think I could have, I think I was so young that I didn't know better. And so I just kept pushing forward. It was one of those things where like, I, I really didn't like doing, nobody likes cold calling. I mean, I I never met anybody that, that likes cold calling, but I just continued to do it, you know, and just continued to kind of like believe the dream. And it just morphed over time. It morphed the, you know, I stuck with it long enough that it paid off. You know, it, it just paid off over time. I didn't know where it was going most of the time, but 
those first 10 years really set the stage for like the last 15. So I'm glad I did it. Alrighty, let's just take a quick break from the interview and thank JustWorks for sponsoring today's episode. Are you a small business owner and looking for an easier way to onboard and manage remote employees? Are you doing it all at your company? Well, JustWorks makes it easier for you to start, run, and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. It can relieve you of some of the administrative work you don't love. You know, the things like running payroll, managing benefits, and figuring out state-by-state rules and regulations if your business spans many states. JustWorks is the ultimate HR platform for small and growing businesses. With simple software and expert work for benefits, payroll, HR, and compliance. JustWorks makes it simple to hire and manage remote employees across all 50 states. Across the country, small businesses with big dreams love JustWorks for its simplicity, intuitive platform, and time-saving features. Whether your team is remote or in person, you can give them access to national large group health insurance plans and manage onboarding, payroll, PTO, and compliance all in one place. Sure, you can do it all, but why do it alone? Learn how JustWorks can help today. Find out how they can help your business by going to JustWorks.com. Again, that's JustWorks.com for more info. So thanks for, to JustWorks for supporting today's show, and let's return to the episode with Al. I'm curious, Al, as, as you've gone on this journey, you've heard in this wave this last year with Tesla and, and just the market in general, where do you go from here? And is there a target net worth you're, you're, you're you know, shooting towards down the road? I'm like past where I thought I would be at 60. So, you know, at 60 years old, I, in my minds, in my smaller minds, you know, to me, like at 60, if I had $3 million in retirement accounts, some cash, I know I figured, you know, I, I don't live an extravagant lifestyle, you know, living off 100, 120 grand a year was fine. You know, that's what I live off now. And I live well, I live, you know, I would travel, I do fun things. I just don't really have, you know, many expensive hobbies. So I'm kind of past where I thought I would be, but I'm 13 years early, you know, like, so I'm, tr- I'm really spending some time now just kind of evaluating where do, where do I want to go with this? Because I didn't have these aspirations of being, you know, a decamillionaire or, you know, having these extravagant kind of things. So now that I, I'm there, I'm kind of trying to figure out, do I just keep pushing the envelope? Do I keep, you know, the risk on, which I feel like I'm very risk on right now? You know, do I pull back? Do I go to a 60-40 split, stock to bond split, you know, a conservative kind of or whatever, moderate portfolio, you know, just ride out that 4% rule. At this point, I feel like I'm too young to retire. So I'm okay with the risk on for a little while longer. I guess my stretch goal, if I had like a dream goal, I would love to have $10 million. Like $10 million to say, like to be like a decamillionaire sounds cool to me. I don't think I'd live any different. I don't think it'd change my life in, in any way, but in just some weird way, it just sounds cool to me. Interesting. So how do you plan to get there at this point? Do you employ the, the current strategy you're on? Do you add real estate? Do you continue to try to pick a couple stock winners or, or what do you do to get there? Well, I've listened to some of your podcasts with the real estate people that you've had on. I'm like, man, that sounds complicated. So I don't think I'll do the real estate thing. I think I'll continue doing what I'm doing. You know, my income um, has been high, you know, over $200,000 a year for the last 10 and should stay there, you know, for as long as I decide to stay in the business. So I'm pretty content with just kind of doing what I'm doing. I feel like it's been working pretty well. 
I get a lot of my time, which is important to me. So like, you know, of course time is like the, the commodity we all want. So I have time to, you know, play music, to do the podcast, to, you know, go hiking, you know, take trips and travel. So I, I feel like I live a pretty good lifestyle now. I get to enjoy my kids. I get to do fun stuff. I don't know if I need to change it up, you know. Um, I don't feel a need at this point to start discovering different business opportunities or, you know, maybe down the road. I don't know. I, I, in my mind space right now, things are going well. I feel comfortable. I, I like the way things are going. Yeah. Any anything out there besides that cyber truck that that you know you want to purchase down the road or want to experience down the road? Yeah, you know, I always wanted a lake house. So, I got caught back in I mean, this is kind of a familiar story. Back in 2007, bought a beach house that I was going to, you know, put on VRBO and use it for myself and hopefully, you know, with the rents from VRBO would pay for itself. Of course, 2008-2009 happens had to wind up short selling that beach house. So I do have a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth just from real estate, but I always wanted a lake house. So that would definitely be something down the road I would love to have. But between that and the Cybertruck, no, I mean, nothing else is really expensive. Like everything else is like maybe like camping equipment, gear, that kind of stuff, outdoor gear. Uh, I play drums. So, but I have, you know, a few drum sets already. Yeah, there's there's really nothing out there. Um, I like to travel too, but I've been traveling, so and I'm not the five star hotel guy. I'd rather just you know do it simple. And yeah, it's kind of strange. It's it's weird being in this position. I didn't think I'd be in this position, and now that I'm there, I don't. I'm very conscious of having that lifestyle creep. So very cautious about you know starting to inflate the lifestyle. Yeah, totally. So. Al, as, as you've gone on this journey, you've been a financial advisor, you've eroded in the waves of the market, individual stocks. What advice would you give to somebody who's who's just starting out or just trying to get, get rolling with their life, their portfolio, their investments? Man, I mean, I don't want to sound, you know, like what everybody else says, but I mean, it, it's just the consistency of it. If you put everything on autopilot, you can't think about this stuff. Like it has to be done automatic. Everything's got to be auto debit, you know, whether it's your 401k. I mean, everything could be on. It's so easy to set up too. And it's so, you could do it within five minutes, right? You could log into your bank account, do a transfer of 200 bucks a month from your checking to your savings whenever you get paid. Just little like automated things that you can do ongoing and just set it and forget it. Like that Ron Popeil commercial, you know, just set the thing up and just don't think about it. You know, just forget about it and just move on. Do something else with your life. But all of those automated things helped a lot. From an investing standpoint, I honestly don't have advice. I'm a financial advisor. I don't have advice as far as picking stocks or anything like that. One thing I, I, I wanted to bring up was the index fund investing, like that whole wave that's happened with the fire movement. That's been really interesting to me because working in the industry between 2000 and 2010, I mean, you couldn't persuade people to be an index fund investor at that point. You know, they wouldn't have made, you know, that was the, they consider like the, what, the dead decade or, you know, so from 2000 to 2010, if you were in the S&P 500, you wouldn't have made any money. So it's hard to sell something, you know, to tell somebody to invest in the S&P when it's not producing anything. And the funny thing about it is that if, if you actually did invest during that 10 years, it probably was the best 10 years to invest because you would have reaped the benefits right. of the last 10. So 
investing is a strange thing. I mean, when, when everybody starts harping on the index fund investing and the low cost, I get it. But at the same points, I mean, what I've done with Tesla, yes, I got lucky. But I feel like I jumped so many years just by taking a chance. I'm not telling people to take chances like I do. I'm just saying that, you know, just be open to other ideas, you know, index fund investing. I don't know if it's, you know, all it's cracked up to be. That's just my opinion. It'll get you there. It'll get you there, no doubt, right? You're just saying you're willing to take a little bit more risk along the way. See eventually, if you can get there faster. It'll eventually get you there, right? Yeah. Yeah, it'll, yeah. I guess the big, the main point with the index fund investing is that people aren't getting the psychology of investing before they're getting the strategy. So it's like the cart before the horse. They're not realizing that when their S&P 500 fund goes down 30% in a crazy year like we just had, are they going to have a knee-jerk reaction and sell at the bottom? Because being in the industry, I would tell you 90% of people left to their own devices would sell. At some point, it hurts too much. They don't want to lose any more money. In the thick of it, they'll pull the trigger and they'll decide to sell. And to give them strategies of how to invest before getting the mental fortitude or the psychology, it's again, it's like that cart before the horse syndrome. Like you can't, it's okay. What's the use of having all these strategies if you're not going to stick with the plan? So that's my kind of. No, it's interesting. Thanks for sharing. Let me just jump back to what you and Jace were talking about. Then I'll keep going with this conversation. But do you ever think like, hey, I should just hang it up? (laughs) <laughs> you know, like sell this Tesla stock, buy the lake house and, and just hang it up and stop working and do what you want to do at five million bucks. Kind of. Yeah, I do. I think about it every day, to be honest, Clark. I mean, so I think about I feel like I'm too early to the party, honestly. Like, I feel like I'm 47. I got kids that are, you know, in in school. Like I have to kind of live off their schedule at this point. If I was 10 years older, absolutely. I, I think I would pull the trigger. But I just feel like at this point, they're in school. I'm kind of in their routine. You know, money, income is good with the business. I almost think it's just kind of too early. I, I wouldn't have the freedom of time to travel extensively to. Yeah, it, it, it's a little bit convoluted because I'm divorced and my girlfriend is divorced. So we are also sharing custody with both kids. So we kind of have to stay in the same location too. So we couldn't just move to a lake house. So some things that are just. So my thesis isn't as appealing. That's <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> it's definitely appealing. I, I think it's All just, right. It was fun to ask. I had, eight, I was, kind of, I was just kind of curious. <laughs> I had to ask. So let, let's talk about the financial planning industry. You're a financial advisor. So wh- why does it get a bad rap? And what, what's your, your take there? Okay. So financial advisors will not like this, but and you probably heard this before, but the financial planning industry or the financial advisory industry, it's an asset gathering industry. Nobody wants to hear that, but that's essentially what it is. The largest financial planners or like the one, the financial advisors and financial planners that make the most money are the ones that can accumulate the most assets, right? Have the most assets under management. So essentially, their entire job, 90% of what they're trying to do is just bring in more assets. And I think the smoke and mirrors part of this is that they're trying to say that, well, no, we, you know, we manage your money. We're, you know, we're allocating you proper, properly. We're doing estate planning. We're doing tax loss harvesting. We're doing like all these different things that sound kind of, you know, very advanced. But really what they're doing is they're, 
they have, you know, maybe five or 10 portfolios that they would use that are pre-selected. They, they didn't put these portfolios together. Just think of it this way. They'll have like a conservative portfolio, a moderate portfolio, and an aggressive portfolio. And I know financial advisors that just have three that they use. And you're going to go into one of those as a new client. So there's no choice in investments. They're not putting portfolios together each time they get a new client. All they're doing is prospecting for new money to bring in to put plunk in one of these, one of these investment portfolios, which they'll then get paid a fee on. So I think that's eight, 80 to 90% of what advisors do because that's how they survive that they have to bring in new money to make more money. I'm not saying financial advisors are bad. I'm not saying that they don't do well by their clients, that they're not giving good advice, that kind of thing. Um, I think they are. But I think if you pull kind of the curtain back and you want to see what they're really doing, they're not looking at spreadsheets. They're not reviewing your account on a weekly basis. They're bringing in new money. That's essentially what they're doing. So there you go. So who, sh- who should use one then? I think people that want nothing to do with it. I think that people that want nothing to do with finance, that what they're like, listen, I, you know, I'm in my work. I'm a doctor. I'm whatever. I'm, I'm in a different profession. I want to concentrate my efforts in that and on my family. And I honestly just don't want to think about finance. I think those are the people that should use financial advisors. It's not for, it really isn't for people that, you know, feel confident in managing their own money. Why would you hire someone? Right. You could, there's so much advice that you can get out there for free. So I think, yeah, it's catered to the people that don't want to be bothered with that. Just as if, you know, like I'm going to hire out somebody to cut my lawn or I don't want to cut my lawn. I want to hire somebody else to do it. Yes, I can do it and save money, but I don't want to spend my time doing that. Or you don't work. want to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not speaking so well about my industry here, but. No, no, I appreciate you being blunt and direct. It's nice. It's nice. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I, I think there's I think there's people that and look, I think the other advantage is sometimes it's nice to have somebody look over something. Yes. Right? I think I think sometimes just to have a second opinion or think that's I think that can be valuable too. And there's other stuff mixed in there. I mean, maybe that's not a financial plan or maybe it goes somewhere else, but you have a state plan and you have a will. There's certain things that you, you certainly want a professional to help you with, I would think. Especially if your assets get to a certain level. Yeah, like new new perspective, like a new set of eyes, something on someone unbiased that's not emotionally involved with your money. I think that's important, definitely. Yeah. So, along with this money, Al, and and the growing net worth here, has has the grow the growth in net worth caused an increase in happiness at all? Is it at all correlated? Oh man, uh, I wish I could tell you yes, but I'd be lying. No, it's it's more stressful to be honest. I feel a little bit more stressed now. I, mean, I don't know if it has to do with, you know, the the pandemic and just being kind of in quarantine and we're kind of just itching to get out and do stuff. Maybe a little bit of that. But I think for me, it, it might be part of my personality since I didn't have these big aspirations of having a big net worth or anything like that. It feels and, and you know, again, half the net worth being in Tesla stock. It's stress. Yeah, it feels a little bit stressful, to be honest. And I'm I'm. I feel like that's the goal for me for 2021 is to figure out how to kind of tone back these stress levels where it's just not necessary. I'm looking at the markets every day. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to be happy when you have $5 million, right? 
Yeah, you're just stressed because you got two and a half million dollars in Tesla and you know it's going to drop 50 percent. You don't know when it's going to happen. Exactly. Right. I'm waiting for like, the anvil to like fall on my head. Exactly. Uh, so I'm curious along that line, as the net worth has grown, have is how you've allocated your time changed, meaning you were grinding early on in your career, going door to door doing sales. Now yep. you're not working as much. When did that shift start to happen? Was it at a certain point or was it just gradually throughout your life and career? Yeah, the shift happened when I went independent. So I went independent eight years ago and brought clients from one institution to another. And from that point, it kind of went on autopilot. So for the last eight years, I wouldn't say part time, but definitely less than full time. I've been working. Um, so I've had a lot of time on my hands, but you know how your mind works. You, you produce new problems. So, you know, I spent so many years with the problem of not having enough money. And then finally you have enough money, your mind starts creating new problems, right? Um, right. or life just throws you new problems. You know, if somebody, a relative gets sick or what, you know, something comes up. So yeah, you just, yeah, you just find stuff to fill the time, right? You do, you do. And you try to be productive, you know, and you try to not be in your own head too much and create problems out of like, you know, out of uh, thin air. But um, it kind of your mind tends to do that if you're not occupied. So I started to realize that, you know, you need to be involved in stuff. You can't just have leisure time. You can't have your mind being empty and just thinking you're just going to vacation and, you know. I, you know, you have all these fantasies when you're younger, you're in your 20s, at least I did, maybe you guys can relate, that, you know, I always thought, like, if I was rich, I would live like a rock star, because I grew up in the 80s, and all the hair bands, like, were partying all the time, and drinking, and having fun, they were living like rock stars, I'm like, wow, that'd be amazing, if I had a lot of money, I'd live like a rock star, and then you turn 47 years old, and you realize the fantasies of when you were in your 20s are not the same as when you're 47, like, like things start to change and you're like, wait, I've had I'm holding on to these same <laughs> fantasies from when I was a kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, so I don't have the same aspirations. I'm like, you start to have to retool your trajectory, like where you want to go. So I'm in the process of kind of doing that. Trying to figure it out a little bit. Yeah. How, let me just ask you some rapid fire questions here and then we'll close it up. How, how old were you when you became a millionaire? I was, let's say 45. It's only two years ago. 45 and then the second third fourth and fifth million came two years after <laughs> yeah. yeah i know it sounds insane yeah um what about household spending how much do you spend annually i actually did this i actually went through my credit card bill so i throw everything on one credit card and paid off monthly after tax i'm spending about eighty thousand a year so whatever that is pre-tax like me 120 pre-tax but yeah eighty thousand a year and that's with travel and everything and as much as you're comfortable sharing, what's been your range of annual income since you started working? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I talk about money all the time with clients. And yeah, 200000 to two fifty has been the range approximately. Some years a little bit more. But yeah, basically two hundred dollars to two fifty probably over the last eight years. And what did you start at in, in New York selling life insurance? Like 50 or something? 40 Oh, my God. Holy wow. man. I... I couldn't even tell you my worst year there. I mean, terrible. Maybe 25? Like 25, but grinding it. Like basically just working ridiculous hours, weekends. Um, I think my best year in the first four was 45,000. 
So let's just wrap it up here, Al. I mean, I, I appreciate you being so candid and open with us. And, and just in closing, any mistakes that you've made or any last words of advice that you'd give? You know, I, I hate to be, I don't want to sound pretentious. Like, I, I don't have any regrets. I'm sure I've made some mistakes. I don't really think about them. Like, I've kind of, you know, I guess the beach, I, from a financial standpoint, getting a beach house in 07 was not a good idea. Um you know, maybe a year from now when Tesla gets <laughs> future mistakes pending. I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess the opinion I have for people that are starting out, everybody always tells you to follow your passion. There's always like these memes, like follow your passion, do what you love and the money will follow, that kind of thing. I did it the polar opposite. Like I did stuff that I didn't like to do for a long time and it paid at, it paid off over time, but it sucked for a long time. So when somebody comes to was me, it like, worth it? Was it worth it to do that? I mean, easy to say yes because you have five million, but do you wish you would have you would have spent more time doing what you enjoyed more? I don't really think that way. I, I kind of think I'm just working life in reverse. You know, I feel like now I'm doing I'm doing my passions in the second half of life instead of starting with my passion and the money following. I feel like I chased money, and then now I get to do some of my passions. So I'm I'm glad I'm at where I'm at. If I had to do it over again. Yeah, maybe I would have done a difference. So again, when like younger people come to me for advice, like a, a nephew of mine sometimes kind of hits me up for, you know, what do you think I should do with this? I'm like, listen, this is coming from someone that did what he didn't want to do for 10 straight years. Like I, I hated what I was doing for a long time. It eventually paid off. So I don't know if I'm the best person to ask for that type of advice. You know, it definitely doesn't sound romantic. No, it's interesting. I appreciate you sharing. I mean, I think it's everybody's opinion and, and advice is different. So it's just it's fun to hear. So just a last question here. I know you mentioned you have a podcast. What is it? Where can people find you or connect with you if they want to? Yeah. Well, thanks for mentioning. Yeah, it's called the unlearningproject.org. Well, that's the website unlearningproject.org. Um, you could look it up under unlearning project. It's on all the major podcast platforms. I kind of just summarize it that just because I'm, I'm an introspective person, try to do this idea of being coming from a place of like self-judgment to just self-curiosity may sound a little hokey, but just that, you know, we're so hard on ourselves in so many different ways and just learning over the years that just kind of being curious about things, being open to, you know, open to index fund investing, being open to individual stock investing like just be open to many different things and see what works for you i think it's just kind of having that open mind and you know if you don't have that it's just you get closed off into these like rigid kind of thought patterns which i don't think are beneficial for anyone so anyway yeah. that's what the unlearning yeah. project is about that so it's awesome. a blog and it's a podcast. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing and thanks for coming on, Al. We're taking enough of your time. So again, everybody, that's Al net worth of $5 million, 2.5 in Tesla stock bought at 200. So congrats on your success and thanks for joining us. Clark, Jace, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I love your podcast. Thanks, Al. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Jace Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.